Well, isn't it a blessing to be together as God's people this morning? I feel like I don't need to say anything further because everything I was going to say, we already sung about it. It was in the scripture reading and it was prayed and I feel very ministered to and full and ready to go out into the world. But as the Lord would have it, we're going to continue in Exodus chapters 17 through 18. So if you join me in your copy of God's Word in Exodus 17, the title of this message is Our Rock, Banner, Deliverer, and Shepherd, which is who our God is. And when it comes to sharing our testimony, we recognize it's not our testimony as much as it is a testimony about Jesus' work in our lives. It's about who he is and what he's done. It's by the grace of God that we are what we are today. And we have so much to be grateful for. We have everything we need. And what is it that you really need in life? You need salvation for your soul and food and clothes. That's all that you need. And with these things, we ought to be content But we recognize in the battle against sin that we don't always find ourselves content in those things. And that's where the rubber really meets the road when sickness strikes and you question God's good protection or bills come due and you question God's good provision for you. Or there's struggles in relationships with people that come along and you question God's good present guidance with you. And sometimes you, you say it out loud and you grumble about your circumstances, but sometimes you live it out loud when you just try to control everything in your own strength or manipulate those situations in the ways that you would like to see them turn out in the end. Trials show us what we really believe about God and what we are in the day of trial, that we are and no more. And it's a gracious thing for God to show us our true spiritual state when he brings us through these trials. Trials are the sandpaper of life. God uses them to smooth out all of the rough edges so that he can conform us into the image of his son. It's the rough things in life which smooth us out ultimately. And God is always doing a good work in every trial we experience. The good work that he does is revealing more of who he is and also making himself known through us as people see his work in our lives as we go through that trial. Trials are for discipleship and evangelism. They're to teach you about God and to show his work in your life to others. Trials are the events which prove that your faith is genuine and you actually belong to God. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. And that way it disciples you that you belong to him and that he loves you. But it also evangelizes others. As it goes on, and this is First Peter that I'm quoting from, it says, By keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the day which they slander you as evildoers, 
they may, because of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In Exodus chapters 17 through 18, we will see God continuing to reveal his name in relation to trials and the testimony of who he is as our rock, our banner, our deliverer, and our shepherd. And all of this so that we can glorify his name by knowing him as he is and revealing him as he is. So let's pray as we approach God's word together. God of my sufficiency, I am a needy man and in need to learn the things of which I preach. I pray that you would help all of us to learn you and to live in you as you are the God who meets all of our needs. We are not sufficient in and of ourselves to live the life that you call us to, but Christ, you are, are our sufficiency. You are our salvation, our strength, our power. You're everything that we need to live the life that you have saved us to live. Thank you that you have canceled the guilt of our sin and that you also break its power so that we can enjoy life in you and with you. Pray that this message would have and bear much fruit in our lives so that we would hear these things and go from here to live them more faithfully so that you would be made known to others. Amen. In the first section of Exodus 17, we see that God is our rock. I'm going to begin in reading Exodus 17, 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of Yahweh, and they camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to put us and our children and our livestock to death with thirst? So Moses cried out to Yahweh, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pass before the people. And take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the contending of the sons of Israel and because they tested Yahweh, saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? You may recall how previously we had looked at Exodus 15 and 16 and saw how God tested the hearts of Israel with things like water, bread, and meat in order to show them what was in their hearts. And we began learning the nature of God's law when the Torah tree was thrown into the water to show that 
God had always planned to make the water sweet. He had always intended to do good to them. And the nature of the law that we saw was that what it does is that it points to God's goodness. God is good to provide a tree that would give living waters to his people. But at the same time, the nature of God's law is that it points out man's sinfulness, that you don't want his goodness, nor do you appreciate it, which points to man's need for a God-man mediator, points out that sin has separated them from holy God, but only a God-man could reconcile that relationship. God tested the hearts of the sons of Israel to show them the status of their hearts. And in our text, we see that the sons of Israel, in return, tested God. They were testing his faithfulness in questioning him. In verse 1, it says, all of the congregation did this. This wasn't just some of the congregation minus a few basically good people. This is the reality of the sons of the first Adam, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they did this after so many things had occurred, like salvation through the Red Sea, and God had already provided water for them, and bread, and meat, but the people, they still contended with Moses. Now, Pharaoh might have been destroyed in Egypt, but his legacy of hardened heart was living on in the sons of Israel. They, like Pharaoh, would not obey God's word. They refused to enter into his rest. They could have asked for water from God who had already graciously provided them sweetened water. But instead, they arrogantly and sinfully demand that God provide for them. Moses makes clear that these Pharaohites were acting in the way of their old master. And he points out that this is not about Moses, this is about Yahweh. He says, why do you test Yahweh? Only Yahweh has the right to test. But Israel, we see the wickedness of their hearts in this situation in which they think that they have a right to test God. And in this way, what happens is that the teacher-student relationship gets flipped. Instead of the teacher being the only one who gives the test, now the student says, we're going to give you a test, teacher. It's never our place to test God's faithfulness. And the reality is, we'll find out that he will be faithful. You test him, he will faithfully judge you. And here is how also we see God's law is carrying out its purpose in that it's pointing out the sinfulness of man's heart. He's teaching them, you guys are satanic. You want to be God. It's not our place to try to act as God and to put him to test or to act as if we would be his teacher or to try to force his hand to do something for us. It's not our place to tell him what to do for us, but rather it's our place to trust his promises, to trust his goodness. So how is it that somebody puts God to the test? 
Well, we see that in this text and that we put God to the test when we refuse to recognize his provision. We also do that when we refuse to remember his protection of us and we refuse to recognize his present guidance in our lives. Looking at how we refuse God's provision, you see that in Israel, that instead of praying for God who faithfully provided for them in the past with thanksgiving, they try to manipulate God by testing him. And at the heart of testing God, you see a heart that doubts his goodness, but also a heart that thinks that you deserve it, and you deserve it now, and that God could do a better job by doing it now because he actually owes you something special. This was a refusal to recognize God's provision and that it's good and that it's wise. Another way that God is put to the test was by not remembering his protection. These people were not only thirsty for water but for blood. They said, why now have you brought us out from Egypt to put us and our children and our livestock to death with thirst? They were suggesting that Moses was guilty of attempted murder, which in their understanding would require the death penalty of him. But do you recall what had actually happened with their sons and their livestock in Egypt? Was it death? No, it was deliverance. But they were calling God's deliverance death, and they were denying God's provision, but also refusing to remember how he had protected them in Egypt. And so the law was exposing that they call good evil and evil good. It was pointing out their sinfulness and that they need a mediator between them and God, which we see pictured in Moses in verses 4 to 6, where you see that God is a present guide of his people. When Moses, the mediator, prays, and he reenacts the Passover before some of the elders of Israel while using that same staff, which was used at the Nile, which symbolized God's strength. He reenacted that salvation through judgment event. It reminded of his judgment on the sandy bank of the Nile, and it pointed to his salvation rock and the living waters which would flow from it. And why was it that the rock was to be struck. Well, it's to show that judgment is deserved, but that judgment can fall on something else. And at what mountain was all of this taking place? This was taking place at Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai, or the Mount of God, which was the Mount of God instructing his people and his holiness, their sinfulness, and need for a mediator to save them. It pointed them ultimately to their need for a savior. And that's how they were to remember this mountain. This mountain reminds us that a judgment strike is deserved, but salvation water can be given. And this mountain was to remind them that there is a way of life, and this mountain is pointing us toward believing in that. The salvation rock ultimately points to the one who is the way and the life, and that God will graciously provide salvation even for people who have sinfully put him to the test. 
He'll be faithful not only to judge, but also faithful to save undeserving sinners. And there's a great tension in this moment. As you'll remember with this people that God had promised to curse anyone who curses his people to Abraham back in Genesis 12. But God had also promised to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant concerning land and seed and blessing for this people that they would be a blessing to all nations. Israel should be cursed for their sin. They should all totally be wiped out. But for God to be true to his word to give them the curse they deserve, but to bring the blessing that he promised, that curse would have to fall upon a substitute. It would have to be a rock that would be struck in their place. Another one would have to take the judgment strike. So God is saying, my solution for you is a substitute strike taker. And God As you remember, going back to Abraham and Isaac at the almost sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22, God provides a substitute on the mount. You remember, Abraham was going to slay his son, but before the knife fell upon him, the Lord shouted from heaven and directed him to a substitute ram caught in the thicket. A picture of how God's salvation would work for Isaac and the children of Isaac in the future. In Exodus 17, Israel should be struck down for putting God on trial and charging him with unfaithfulness. But instead, God graciously calls Moses to stand as a judge with the staff of God's judgment strength. And instead of Israel being struck down, the rock is struck as a substitute. And what they get when the rock is struck is water living water. As Paul comments on this text in 1 Corinthians 10.4, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. You think of it like this, is that they drank from the spiritual protector, provider, guider that followed them, and the protector, provider, guider was Christ. The living Christ who still says today, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, ever. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. This is the one of whom it is written, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. Christ is the rock that was with Israel in the wilderness, and the rock who was struck on the, cro- on the cross for our salvation. What it means that God is our rock is that he is our provider our protector and present guide. He's everything that Israel thought he wasn't. Israel failed to recognize God's provision, protection, and that he was their present guide when they said, is Yahweh among us or not? Well, the answer to that question is found in chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. Join me in reading those, 17, 8. 
Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out. Fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will take my stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him to fight against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it happened when Moses raised his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sunset. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it in Joshua's hearing, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, Yahweh is my banner. And he said, Because he has sworn with a hand upon the throne of Yah, Yahweh will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Here we see what God had said to the serpent in the garden in Genesis 3.15, carrying on. There is enmity between the serpent's seed, that's Amalek, and the woman's seed, which is Israel. God's plan is moving forward exactly like he said it would happen. But the number one value of the children of Abraham that was taught to them early on was supposed to be faith. Their number one value was to be faith, not grumbling. And Israel was meant to have a global impact. What you're seeing, that's happening here, and that their impact is extending out to the nations. And so this text goes from national to international impact. As a historical side note here, the Amalekites were descendants of Esau. Esau's brother was Jacob, who was renamed Israel, which means God fights for you. And here we see Israel is living up to their name as God was fighting for them, being led by Joshua, whose name means Yahweh is Salvation, which in Greek is the name Jesus. As Moses held up the staff, which was a banner, his hands would grow heavy. This is a word that's also translated as glory in this throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And you see that his hands were heavy from upholding the glory that was being given to God in this battle. But he found his hands steadied. And this word steadied here is the word amen, or it's also translated as faith. It's like, well, how were his hands steadied? Well, it was by Aaron and her other brothers in the faith that were upholding his arms to help uphold the glory of God in the battle together. This event of God faithfully fighting for a people who questioned his presence among them was something that was to be written down and memorialized and recited to Joshua in the future so that he could meditate on it day and night and shape him into the strong and courageous man that he was to be. 
As the book of Exodus, you may remember the Hebrew title is Names. This book builds on the name of God, and we learn Yahweh is my banner. Well, what does it mean that Yahweh is my banner? Well, as we discussed, this is tied to God's glory and our faith in Him. To recognize Yahweh as our banner is to give Him glory for making Himself in the known in the world through people having faith in him to be who he will be and do what he said he was going to do. This reminds us of Psalm 115 that says, Not unto us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, Where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. We listened to a song on that psalm in the van driving here by H.B. Charles. Just wanted to mention that so you look up H.B. Uh, Charles in his album, The Lord Bless You. It's the one with the green background. First song, it'll bless your soul. But just a good reminder that we want the glory to go to, to God and not ourselves. The launch of the nation of Israel had a purpose, and its purpose was to teach the nations. Well, what were they being taught in this battle against Amalek? They were being taught God alone gets the glory. And the number one value in all of life is faith in God. When Joshua overwhelmed Amalek, the message was clear to all of the nations. Bless Israel and be blessed. Curse Israel and be cursed like Amalek. You can give God the glory and have faith in him, or you can be like Amalek and get judged like Amalek. This was a lesson for the whole world that if you oppose God, you will be judged by God. God is not the God of Israel only, but also the Gentiles, and he makes no distinction and shows no partiality. God has a global plan, and you cannot stop him. As you see in this text, we read about how God would ultimately blot out the memory of Amalek. And this war went on from generation to generation, even to the time of King Saul, who failed to blot them out as an Israelite who was from the tribe of Benjamin. And there's a couple of other Benjaminites that show up in the book of Esther later in Scripture, their names are Mordecai and Esther. And just as there are sons of Jacob, there are also sons of Esau, the Amalekites. And who would you guess is the Amalekite in Esther that gets destroyed? Now, if we could, we could play a game of hangman to see if you could guess the letters in his name, but that's a little bit too much of a hint. <laughs> Haman becomes the hangman. When he reaps what he sows in the line of Amalek and he gets destroyed by the God who promises to fight for his people from generation to generation. The book of Esther reminds us that God never forgets his promises. Even when it looks that way, he always proves his faithfulness. Where chapter 17 in Exodus shows the destruction side of God's plan Chapter 18 reminds us of the deliverance side of God's plan. 
which has the effect on a Gentile named Jethro that it should have had on grumbling Israel. If you'll join me in beginning to read that, we'll look at 18, 1 through 12 together here. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how Yahweh had brought Israel out of Egypt. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife Zipporah after he had sent her away. And her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the Mount of God. And he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. And Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey, and how Yahweh had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which Yahweh had done to Israel, that he had delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods, for in this matter they acted presumptuously against the people." Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses, his father-in-law, before God. Here in this text, we see a gospel witness of God's deliverance. And Jethro, who was a priest, he was a priest similar to Melchizedek, and that one of the things that priests did was They taught people things. And he was a priest of Midian, a Gentile of all people, who was teaching the Israelites about the greatness of their God's deliverance. And he was the father-in-law to Moses, who is put in contrast to Pharaoh, who wouldn't let God's people go out to worship Yahweh in the wilderness. But instead, Jethro had been caring for Moses' wife and two boys. And when it was time to let them go worship Yahweh, he let them go and he even brought them. Because he had heard how Yahweh had brought Israel out of Egypt. He had heard what Israel was deaf to, even though they had been the ones who actually lived through it. Grandpa Jethro also heard gospel testimony every time he would call his grandsons in for supper. Like every time this guy shows up, he's always inviting people to have meals with him. Then you think about when he would call the boys in for supper, he'd say, Gershom, which means I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And he'd say, Eliezer, which means the God of my father was my help, a reminder that he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. 
simply calling out those boys' names was similar to when we hear somebody give a baptism testimony and they answer the questions, you know, what was I like and what did God use to open my eyes? Well, I was a sinner, but God helped me to see his holiness and deliver me from his wrath by lifting up Jesus Christ on the cross so that I would be drawn to salvation in him. Here at the Mount of God, Jethro saw what God's Mount of Instruction pointed to. And Jethro also heard gospel witness when Moses recounted. Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on their journey and how Yahweh had delivered them. You may recall how in Exodus, this is exactly why Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. It says in 9.16, But indeed, for this reason I have caused you to stand in order to show you my power and in order to recount my name through all the earth. You hear this again in God's name being recounted, continuing from gener generation to generation, as Yahweh later said to Moses, Come to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants with firmness, that I may set these signs of mine among them, and that you may recount in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I dealt severely with the Egyptians and how I put my sign among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. The irony of Gentile Jethro rejoicing in these truths in contrast to delivered Israel grumbling about them is seen throughout and that Jethro didn't respond to Moses like the sons of Israel and say, Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that Yahweh brought them into the wilderness to die? Jethro didn't grumble over all the badness which Yahweh had done to Israel. But Gentile Jethro ends up having the response that Israel should have had. In verse 9 it says, Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which Yahweh had done to Israel, that he had delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. You're probably hearing the repetition and the focus on that word delivered to show that Jethro didn't call deliverance death like the Israelites did and curse Yahweh. Instead, going on in verse 10, it says, So Jethro, Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh, who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh, and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods, for in this matter they acted presumptuously against the people. Now, note that at the Mount of Instruction that Jethro doesn't believe because of the law of God, but he believes because of the work of God giving him a believing heart. This is a reminder of the Abrahamic covenant that God will bless those who bless you. This is the response that Amalek should have had, but Amalek didn't know Yahweh. But Jethro does. He doesn't just know about him, but he actually knows Yahweh in relationship. He believes Yahweh, and so much so that he takes a burnt offering and makes sacrifices to God, which 
symbolized a life of total dedication to God, a life that would be totally burnt up to him to be a a fragrant aroma to God because you're so grateful for the deliverance that he's provided for you. At this time in history, all of the earth is observing God's deliverance of his people and they're all either responding like Amalek and cursing or like Jethro and blessing. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with C.T. Studd, who was a cricket player turned missionary to China, famous for the quote, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Before C.T. was born again, he was born in the home of his father, Edward Studd. And his father's life was that of a wealthy Englishman who led a life of ease and entertainment until he was suddenly converted under the preaching ministry of D.L. Moody. And his boys noticed an evident change in their father. Instead of taking him to the theater like he used to, he would take them to go hear Moody preach. And C.T. Studd, commenting on this change in his father's life, said, Before that time, I used to think that religion was a Sunday thing, like one Sunday clothes to be put away on Monday morning. We boys were brought up to go to church regularly, but although we had a kind of religion, it didn't amount to much. Then all at once, I had the good fortune to meet a real live Christian. It was my own father, but it did make one's hair stand on end. Everyone in the house had a dog's life out of it until they were converted. I was not altogether pleased with him. He used to come into my room at night and ask if I was converted. There's something about truly coming to Christ where ease and entertainment take a back seat to recounting Jesus' saving work in our lives to others and being concerned about them being converted to Christ. There's something about truly coming to know Christ where Suddenly, movies take a back seat to sermons, and sports like cricket take a back seat to evangelism and missions. You can't come to know the God who is greater than all other gods and be unchanged. Gospel deliverance changes everything in life. It changes our priorities, but not only our priorities, but our conduct as well. We see this and the recounting and rejoicing in God's deliverance. Moses was now a man who, in his conduct, he recounted the testimony of God's deliverance. And Jethro was a man who rejoiced in God's deliverance, which here is very different than grumbling about present circumstances. But you also see, well, what's the cure for grumbling? It's recounting and rejoicing. It's recounting how God has helped you in, re- in the past. It's rejoicing in how he has delivered your soul from his wrath. And we do this ultimately because it glorifies God. We recount and rejoice in that salvation so that we can enjoy his glory, but we also do this for each other. We recount God's faithfulness to one another in fellowship This is why we've been sharing our testimonies in our home fellowship group, because hearing the testimony of God's deliverance 
helps us fight sin. It helps us fight the sin of grumbling. You know that fighting the sin of grumbling is hard. And we need the help of each other to recount God's faithful deliverance in our lives so that we can rejoice together in any and every circumstance for the greater progress of gospel witness in the world. You'll remember how we have learned these things from the recent preaching series in Philippians. How the Holy Spirit writes, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to boast because I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. You hear how there's this fellowship of helping one another to turn away from grumbling to rejoicing and how it has a gospel testimony throughout the world in a crooked generation. Through which Paul, again, he comes back to saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So let your reasonable, gentle spirit be known to all. The Lord is near. And he says, these are the things that put to death anxiety, and they guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And we need to help one another in this, and the way that we do that is recounting God's faithfulness. To remember in that moment when you think, I don't know how this is going to turn out. This is hard. I don't know how this is going to go in the end. But you think, has God ever been unfaithful to you, ever? And then you start recounting, no, there was this one time when he did this and he was faithful. And this other time when he did this and he was faithful. Has he changed and is he different today? No. But sometimes you need somebody to come and just tell you that again. Say, so like, oh yeah, I, I forgot about that. Thank you for the reminder. And that's a good way to respond to it too instead of grumbling at him. <laughs> God is our deliverer who delivers us for the purpose of speaking about him and living for him. That coming back to, you know, the irony of Gentile Jethro blessing Yahweh is that he also blesses Israel with some instruction on how to shepherd this great nation which was being formed. And we see that in picking up in verse 13. This is chapter 18 beginning verse 13. Now it happened the next day that Moses set to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. And Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people. So he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge, and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you are doing is not good. 
you will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now, listen to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God, and you bring the matters to God. Then warn them about the statutes and the laws, and make known to them the way in which they shall go and the work they shall do. But you shall select excellent men out of all the people, those who fear God, men of truth, those who hate greedy gain, and you shall place these men over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they will judge the peoples at all times, and it will be that every major matter they will bring to you, but every minor matter they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose excellent men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times, the difficult matter they would bring to Moses, but every minor matter they themselves would judge then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way into his own land. In these verses, there's this word that's translated as either thing or matter, which happens to be the word for the ten words, which we call the ten commandments that are going to come later in Scripture. And as God would have it. This word happens to be used exactly 10 times in Jethro's counsel, readying him for God's 10 words that would come to address every matter in life and be written on tablets of stone. And what we see here is God being the shepherd of the, this people. And the way that he shepherded them, shepherded them was by providing shepherds over them. You see, the nation of Israel had become so great that Moses couldn't lead them with his limited resources. He couldn't lead this many people alone, and he didn't have all the instruction he needed yet. He needed God to be his strength and his wisdom, and he needed to be able to give all the glory to God. And so he's going to need to be able to do everything according to the word of God. But even as great as, as this man was as God's covenant mediator, he wasn't enough. He needed other men to share the leadership task, other men who were committed to trusting God's word. You probably heard how that word heavy came up again. You remember when Moses' hands were too heavy at the battle of Amalek and he needed brothers to help hold up his hands. He perhaps remembered that event when Jethro was saying, this task is too heavy for you. It's like, oh yeah, I need somebody to help hold up my arms so we can keep giving God the glory and how we carry out this task of caring for God's people. Now, as you think about this and the difficulty of the task, Moses' heart might given, be given to drooping and despairing, but Jethro encourages him and saying, 
Listen to my voice. I will give you counsel and God be with you. You will be the people's representative before God and you will bring the matter to God. You know, Moses was encouraged with these words, God be with you, to help him to be the representative mediator that he was to be and that he could take these cases to God and God would ultimately shepherd them. Verse 20 continues in this council saying it was to warn them, that these men were to warn them about the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they shall go and the work they shall do. Moses was here given the wisdom to delegate leadership, and he would need to do that given the greatness of Israel. And you perhaps, as you heard those character qualifications of that leadership, you thought of those character qualifications for God's leadership in his church in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. These chosen men who were to join in the leadership were to warn them. You think about it like they were to be able to teach. They were to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to reprove those who contradict it. They were to make known the way in which they shall go and the work they shall do. This sounds very much like 2 Timothy 2, 2. And these things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And it was also a call in that these were to be excellent men, that they should pay close attention to themselves and the teaching and to persevere in these things. For as you do these you will save both yourself and those who hear you. These were to be excellent men. They were to be capable discerners of clean from unclean, truth from almost truth. Their lives were to be of, above reproach. They were to have skill in knowing how to understand and live according to God's word and to have godly character. There were men who would be devoted to studying, living, and teaching God's word. They're described as men who fear God, which means they have a relationship with God. They fear him, therefore they forsake sin and they follow him. And these were men of truth. They were trustworthy. They obeyed God and you could count on them. They were dependable. And they hated greedy gain. You couldn't bribe them because they were men of such character. They didn't love money. Uh, they weren't divided in their devotion to God where sometimes they served money and sometimes they served God. They recognize you can't serve both. And they're described as being over them or over the people. They were overseers and they were to judge the people. They were to make decisions skillfully based on God's word. And Jethro said to Moses, they will bear the burden with you. That his leadership was to be a shared leadership. You could think of this as an early form of a plurality of elders. Moses was growing in his leadership ability as God was refining him, but he wasn't going to be the only leader. One commentator commenting on Moses says, Moses did not lack the acumen or administrative ability to create a workable system. He had simply tried to do it all himself. 
He, as a limited human being, needed to learn to delegate authority and share the burdens of this people. Jethro helped him realize a better way. You could imagine how it'd be difficult for Moses as a capable leader to, to delegate, uh, but you see that he had to humble himself and to recognizing he needed help and to find help in men of excellent character who could judge minor matters and bring the more difficult ones to him. There's a great benefit that comes from a plurality of qualified leaders. And you'll note also how in verse 23 that Jethro said, if you do this thing and God so commands you. He says, this is something for you to obey and it has to be something that God has commanded ultimately. You know, don't, don't trust my wisdom, but trust God's wisdom. Look to him to be your sufficiency in carrying out this leadership task. And here's the benefits of this leadership being shared. It says, you will be able to endure. And also, all these people will go to their place in peace. So you guys will have endurance, and the people will have peace. This is going to be a good thing. The task of shepherding God's people wouldn't fall on Moses alone, but other chosen men among the people. This would result in endurance among the leadership and enjoyed peace amidst the whole congregation. And so Moses listened and did. He was a hearer and doer of the word. We see Moses becoming the legendary man of humility that he would be known for in Numbers 12, 3. And we learn what humility does. Humility is teachable. Humility listens and does. And all of this was by the kind shepherding work of the chief shepherd working through another under-shepherd to counsel another guy to have some other under-shepherds to help him in caring for God's people. Ultimately, God is our shepherd. And we see that the way that he cares for us is through establishing under-shepherds to care for his people who have become so great. In Exodus 17 through 18, what we have seen is how God uses trials and testing to build a testimony for his name ultimately. It's about seeing him as he is and making him known as he is. And what we learned in this text is that God is our rock. He is our good provider, our good protector. He is our present guide. As it's put in Acts 4, Jesus Christ is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. We also saw how God is our banner. And the way that we uphold his glory to the nations is by walking in faith. Our number one value in life is faith in God. Our number one value is trusting God, though the earth should change, as we heard in Psalm 46 this morning. Though the earth should change, he will not change. God won't change in his faithful character or his will in what he has promised to do in this world through his people. 
we also learn that God is our deliverer and that we exist to recount his deliverance from generation to generation. Instead of speaking with grumbling, we speak with grace. Instead of cursing, we bless the saving name of Jesus so that we might shine as light amidst a crooked and perverse generation. Lastly, we saw that God is our shepherd, and he shepherds us by protecting us, providing us, and guiding us, and using human instruments to to do that, that he shows his presence with us through a present people, a present leadership, men of excellent character who are committed to his word. God has graciously given us the gifts of trials, the gifts of leadership and guidance by his word so that we could more faithfully live for him and make him known as our rock, our banner, our deliverer, and our shepherd. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for teaching us and reminding us more about your name so that we would live more faithfully to you, that you would help us in our hearts to turn from grumbling to gratitude, that we would turn from forgetting about your faithfulness to recounting it to one another. We pray that you would help us in our fellowship to, to be friends like that who help one another to recount your faithfulness. And we pray that you would help us to grow in being a light in this world so that we would make your salvation of destruction and deliverance known to others, that they would come to know the great salvation that Jethro blessed you for. We pray that we would be found faithful in being your people and giving your witness from your missionary heart for the nations. Amen.